0: He tēnei nā
1: te reo irirangi o Hello. Piki Mai Kake Mai and welcome to Our Changing World, Ko Alison Balance Ho. Tonight's program is brought to us by William Ray and a group of virus experts from the University of Otago. They presented a panel discussion called COVID 19 Unmasked. Understanding the Outbreak, at the New Zealand International Science Festival in Dunedin last month. Here is half an hour of highlights from that discussion. First up, the speakers introduce themselves.
2: So my name's Vernon Ward, I'm a professor of virology in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology here at Otago I guess I've had about 30 years of experience as a researcher on virology, most of that with RNA viruses. Um, I head up a, a major research programme on antiviral development against RNA viruses that includes researchers from different parts of New Zealand, the University um, of Victoria and the Ferrier Institute, uh, Glycosin, which is a chemical manufacturing company in New Zealand, uh, University of Auckland, um, some of the best medicinal chemists in the country, and we have linkages out to places like Albert Einstein College, University of Southampton in the UK, that sort of thing thing. And also I've been part of a reasonably informal group that's been monitoring the various drugs that are being developed with the thought that what is looking like the best candidates because we might need to make them in New Zealand at some time.
0: Hi there, my name's Gemma Geegan. I'm a virologist and evolutionary biologist in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology. So my research focuses on how and why viruses jump from animal hosts into different species, such as humans, and how they spread through populations and evolve and adapt through space and time and I use genomic sequencing and next generation techniques and bioinformatics to try and understand that and why I'm sitting here is because I guess I am leading a genomic sequencing project funded by the MB Innovation Fund and we're sequencing as many positive samples from the New Zealand cases as we can and um, to try and understand how the virus uh, evolved and spread um, through New Zealand and the sort of genomic diversity that we ended up with here.
3: Kia ora koutou. My name is Michael Baker. It's a great pleasure to be down in Dunedin. I'm normally based in Wellington at the Clinical School. I'm one of the professors of public health there. And I have spent about 30 years working on infectious diseases, environmental health, housing and health, um, those sort of external threats to our existence. And I have worked on a number of previous pandemics, but I never expected to see this kind of event on this scale at this point in time. I guess like all of us, it's been an unreal, almost surreal period, I'd say the most intense of my working life, uh, particularly back in March when I think Museum was facing very tough choices. I worked very hard on developing the elimination strategy. I'm running a couple of reasonably large research programs in Wellington funded by the Health Research Council that are contributing to shaping the
4: response. My name is Miguel Quinones Mateo. I'm professor in virology at the University of Otago, Department of Microbiology and Immunology. I'm here because um, I'm a virologist. I've been working for involved with viruses for the last 25, close to 30 years now. I came to Dunedin almost uh, 18 months ago. With the idea of working with emergent viruses, and I never thought that I was going to be in the middle of this pandemic now. One of the reasons I'm here is because we were able to keep uh, our PC3 uh, physical containment laboratory 3 open in the department, and we were able to isolate for the first time in New Zealand the virus. And as you can imagine, that did open the door for many projects uh, from antiviral to vaccine to disinfection of PPE. Uh, Kirokoto. My name's David Murdoch. My day job is, is Dean of
5: University of Otago's Christchurch campus. By background, I'm an infectious diseases specialist, a particular interest in respiratory infections and vaccine-preventable infections. And as part of this pandemic, I'm on the, uh, the Ministry of Health's Technical Advisory Group. I'm on the government's uh, Science and Technical Advisory Group on the Vaccine Strategy I'm also uh, one of three independent members overseeing the clinical trials for, for the vaccine being developed at Oxford University. And uh, I have various roles in, in the health system,
6: mainly in Canterbury and with uh, diagnostic testing. Michael, we'll start off with you. How has the ministry and the government responded to this virus? And I guess sort of wrapped up in that question is what could we have done better or what could we do to better next time?
3: Overall, New Zealand's response has been spectacularly good relative to other Western countries. And if you look at across the OECD, just using a very crude metric of the mortality rate from COVID-19 is around four per million, and that's the lowest in the OECD along with Australia. And it's an order of magnitude a hundredfold less than many other countries are experiencing that, if anything, have a lot more science resources. They're more um, affluent than New Zealand and across the Western world. Unfortunately, I think there's been a huge failure of risk assessment and risk management with this pandemic. It's actually been characterised as complacent exceptionalism by the editor of The Lancet, um, that somehow the Western world thought that this was not going to be a pandemic. They really needed to act proactively to prevent. And I think it's really uh, going to be an amazing case study of how New Zealand and Australia, I think, responded far more proactively, and New Zealand in particular. And I think uh, we were really staring down the abyss in mid-March, and I think at really the last moment possible, New Zealand changed its direction. Instead of treating this as an influenza pandemic, it switched to treating it more like a SARS pandemic that could be contained and eliminated. And we're still the only country in the world that actually has a published elimination strategy but a lot of other countries are doing the same thing and getting on to the point of doing it better where taiwan really did it better they um, really had the infrastructure they assessed the risk very early january and they started taking measures to, to manage their borders and they did everything right and they did it so well they didn't need a lockdown and they've come out of it in very a very good condition they're not actually in the oecd as we know they actually don't even have a seat at the world health organization But that's the kind of model I think we could follow in future in responding to this event.
6: I mean, do you think, to a degree, we're getting sort of a slight false sense of security in that New Zealand has done well off the back of a very strict lockdown, but that our systems potentially weren't actually that strongly tested?
3: Look, I agree. I mean, a lockdown is a very crude, blunt instrument, as we all know. Um, You put the entire country into home quarantine for what turned out to be almost seven weeks. And basically that extinguished almost everything that was being transmitted between people. I mean, it was very effective. And um, we saw influenza rates drop to just about zero. So it's a great tool if you want to basically douse a forest fire. And that gave us time to get some of the more subtle, more uh, focused tools going, like testing and contact tracing. And, of course, we had the, the border quarantine, which is also quite brutal in that it reduced the number of travellers coming into New Zealand to the point where some days no one came into New Zealand, on two days, I think, which had never happened for decades. So we're really using quite extreme measures which are effective. And the challenge now in this post-elimination world is to actually get back to, I guess, a more normal existence, which I think we can do very effectively. And one thing to remember is that across the eastern hemisphere now, There are at least a dozen countries pursuing the same goal as New Zealand and all doing extremely well despite setbacks. So you've got mainland China protecting 1.4 billion people, Taiwan and a number of other countries that are doing very well. So we won't be isolated for long, I don't think.
6: Mm. So, I mean, I I guess this is still on a similar kind of topic, but Miguel, if we had another virus like this emerge again in future... Could we stop it? And I note that we've already seen um, some reports of an influenza-like illness appearing, which does have pandemic um, potential.
4: Yeah, I mean, just quoting uh, Dr. Wester, Robert Wester, um, we have been waiting for something like this to happen for many, many years. And unfortunately, this is not going to be the last time. There are precedents for this. 2003, we have the renal SARS. 2012, we have the MERS. Fortunately for us, these, those viruses were not transmissible, as this one is. And fortunately for us, this one is not as pathogenic as uh, those two were. Dr. Webster said really, really well uh, a couple of months ago in one of the articles, uh, we have a really short memory. Mm-hmm. And, and this is going to last, who knows, for how long until we develop a vaccine and everything. But we cannot forget 2020 and sars coronavirus 2 because it will happen again. It may not be that easy to eliminate uh, next time.
6: I mean, are you confident that we will? Because I'm sure people said much the
4: same thing in 1918. <laughs> well, we, we forgot in 2003 for the first one in the MERS and then uh, remember everything that happened with influenza in 2009. And uh, we, we, we keep forgetting about this. Mm-hmm. In fact, in many countries around the globe right now, we forgot after two or three months. and so People got tired of staying home. And they started to not go out because they cannot take it anymore.
6: Gemma, the, the story of the origins of this virus has sort of s- slightly fallen out of the news. P- people would have heard something to do with bats, something to do with markets, and then something to do with bioweapons labs and things like that. Um, what, what do we know about the origins?
0: It's clear that the virus is, um, has jumped from wildlife. Um, We know that coronaviruses um, are harboured in bats. So bats are the natural reservoir host for coronaviruses, that it seems, and they harbour many different types of, of these types of viruses. The closest relative to the virus that has emerged in humans was sampled from a bat. However, it's not the direct ancestor of this virus because the genetic changes that have occurred is equivalent to about 50 years of of evolution. So we know that it's not the direct ancestor, and we haven't sampled that direct ancestor yet. However, we do know that it infects other wildlife and it causes disease in other wildlife. So pangolins have a very similar virus as well and they suffer from the same sort of symptoms as as we do, for example, and same with minks and other other species too. And we know that they are heavily trafficked and traded in things like wet markets, for example. So it's likely that the virus did emerge from either an animal that was present at a wet market or that has you know ample um, contact with humans and um, whether or not it it happened at the market or elsewhere and, and then proliferated at the market we're not sure but certainly the the evidence points to that it's jumped from wildlife as many human viruses have in the past the vast majority but we probably haven't sampled the direct ancestor of this virus yet
6: will we be able to nail that down at at some stage? Like, is that something that will definitely happen or is there a possibility Um, that we'll just never know?
0: Yeah, there is that possibility. We won't know, but there is a a huge effort into um, sort of virological sampling of wildlife, especially at this interface where humans and animals interact. And the sequencing technologies that we have available to us allow us to be able to go out and sequence all viruses within a host to explore novel viruses and what exists in nature so through more sampling there's a good chance we will find out.
6: So Miguel you look at this area too there's been some suggestion that this virus has actually been around for at least a year and, and maybe two in China what's the thinking around that?
4: The reality is, is that all these viruses have been around for a long long time just to make the simile with HIV for example. I mean, there is evidence now that HIV was jumping from from non-human primates, you know, chimpanzees and gorillas and all that, for years, hundreds of years, maybe. Hmm. Um, But because of the, 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 the situation, you know, back in the 1800s, early 1900s, wasn't the perfect, you know, storm that happened in the 80s that they could escape from from Africa, so the same thing happened with these 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 viruses. With these, you know, they're they're being infecting bats for for a long time, mm-hmm. and it, it just happened that somehow somebody going to a cave, being exposed to Wano, and then, then maybe just a mild infection, and go back to the you know to the city, and then they start spreading, or maybe in the market like that. Gemma was saying, these viruses are out there. And as long as we keep being being exposed to to, to all these viruses, this is going to continue happening.
6: I'd like to move on to to talking a bit about treatment. There's a lot of discussion around sort of hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir, which are names I only know how to pronounce because there's been huge debate around them. Vernon, can you explain what's going on here with these
2: drugs? people are obviously looking to say we've got this disease going on can we treat it and they're looking at what we already have the things that are there that are known we can use in people um, and is there an answer there because it speeds the whole process up and that drug approval process hydroxychloroquine is really interesting i guess it's a good example of research by press release as somebody else called it i um, wouldn't know anything about that <laughs> <laughs> Look, i've known these proof of hydroxychloroquine working against viruses from the early 1970s in culture and in the intervening 50 years it's never effectively being able to be used in, in people or in animals at least not that I'm aware of and so it comes up you know, there was some science done and it was published very quickly and it's one of the issues we've got at present. Everybody's trying to get the information out very quickly because that's very important. It's not always looked at. And then it gets picked up and, and you know, it almost became a meme of itself. Really sick people, it's not going to do anything. And that's now well proven. We still don't know. There could be scenarios, early stages of, of infection, prior to catching it, prophylactic type approaches where there's still hope for hydroxychloroquine. But as it sits right now, for sick people it wasn't a great surprise that it didn't work but it got picked up and, it needed, and we need to look at what we've got there was nothing wrong with testing it, that needed to be done but it was sort of almost a little bit of a hope to that, when you come to remdesivir you know, it's been used against Ebola it's sitting there, they've done the docking studies, a lot more molecular evidence behind that it might work and again, it, it might help a bit but it's not quite perfect, it's really difficult to get good drugs without really designing them Is there a chance
6: that there are drugs out there that do work that we just haven't figured out that they do
2: work? Yeah, and there's more drugs coming through trials. Um, I was just looking recently. There's a drug, Use the big name again, of Fevipirivir, which is an anti-influenza drug designed in, in Japan. There's data coming now that says if you've got mild disease or moderate disease but not severe, it actually looks pretty promising can't guarantee that. We need the more studies. You know, There's a lot of studies being done where what people are doing is they're doing their randomised study, but they're not doing it on a sufficient scale. And if you look at where antiviral drugs have been successful and they've worked them out, they're large-scale tests, properly controlled, properly randomised, completely bind. There's trials going on for a drug called Galadisavir right now. Those trials are underway, but the people doing their work have no idea what was put into, into the people that are undergoing those trials. They can't I won't have any idea about what the outcomes will be before they break all the unknown codes behind it all, and it's really important that it's done right. So yes, there's drugs in the system, there's a chance that those drugs will be good. We might, in time, have to go to really specifically designed drugs for this virus, but there's a reasonable chance that we will have something that is effective, and there are drugs like the Favipiravir that are showing promise now in the right circumstances. I imagine
6: our audience, given they've come along to a talk on uh, COVID-19, avid consumers of COVID-19 news, when should they start feeling excited? Because, you know, there's so many new drugs that are being thrown around. At what point do they sit up and go, oh, I should take this one seriously?
2: Yeah, that's a really difficult question to answer. (laughs) Thank you for that one. (laughs) Just take a little bit of care over it. The information will come available. You know, think about have the trials been big enough to really give meaningful data? Have they done been properly? It's not the, you know, A lot of little trials can give hints. And I guess I was talking to somebody recently who was a doctor during the HIV outbreak, which Miguel has mentioned earlier, and there's wonderful drugs there for HIV now. Many people can live a near-normal life with HIV, but there was years to get those drugs, and it wasn't until they did the proper trials, the large-scale you know, completely placebos, double-blind trials, that you actually got the real data and information. I think there's genuine hope for drugs. I think we'll find new drugs. I think there's a reasonable chance we'll repurpose some drugs. But we need the proper data to know that it's going to work and it needs to be done properly.
4: One of the good things that has happened with this pandemic is that pretty much every single scientist around the globe... I mean, Pharmaceutical companies, universities, clinical labs, everybody's working together to try to find something to combat this virus. So developing drugs, you can imagine the libraries of compounds and drugs that these pharmaceutical companies may have, thousands, sometimes millions of compounds, everything is being tested against this virus. It's just that it takes time. Of course, everybody's you know, really tired and after six months in lockdown and you just want something, and just give me something that I can just go back and start working again. Uh, but it takes time. Developing the drug takes five, ten years. And these particular viruses is slightly different than the typical RNA virus that we see out there. I mean, developing a drug that works for these viruses is slightly different than working for HIV, hepatitis C, or even influenza virus. It's able to fix mistakes, okay? We need to remember that this is...
2: All the arms here are really
4: important in this.
2: The testing that that David has mentioned earlier, the public health that Michael's been talking about, all of those are really critical arms to this. That You'll have drugs, they will be absolutely critical in time along the way. Our vaccines will be really important, but we also know there will be people that will not take the vaccine no vaccine is 100%. So having, you know, for people they get sick, having a drug will be really important. But if we actually stop them getting infected through good public health work, you know, through good testing, the stuff that's doing, all of these things need to play together to be really effective control. It's not, there's, there's no magic bullet here. So when do we get a vaccine?
4: <laughs> when we started working with HIV back in the 80s, somebody said, when we're going to get a vaccine, they say in two years, and then they change it to five years. It has been five years for the last... 30 years, of, almost 40 years. Could world. that happen to COVID-19? No. No, 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 no. No. Well, I'm not going to go on record say that that <laughs> could happen. Uh, um, but it could happen.
5: <laughs> yes, I mean, it's the question that everyone's been asking. Of course, we, we may not get a vaccine, but if we do, the, the numbers, that are the timing's been repeatedly 12 to 18 months, and the, the fact it hasn't changed really reflects the fact that we just don't actually know much more than that. You don't really know a vaccine's going to work until you do the final trials, the, the phase three trials. And so, you know, many promising platforms, and there are many are, are being evaluated at the moment, but we need those trials. So there's a lot of caution. The key message, though, is that it's moving with supersonic speed. Now, it may not appear to you that it's moving really fast, but typically most of the vaccines we're familiar with have taken 10, 15, even 20 years to get to market. That is the typical time frame. Now we're looking at something that could possibly be 12 to 18 months. I mean, that is incredibly fast. And it used to be a lot of the, the lab development that took the time. Now it's actually the, the, the rate-limiting step, that, the, the step that holds it up is doing the clinical trials. We have to go through the rigorous clinical trials that are ethical that will determine whether the vaccine's effective, safe and determine what sort of dose to give. And that's happening already on some vaccines... On an infection seven, eight months ago, we we had never heard of. Mm. So that, that is incredible. There's, there's no guarantee, but there are gr- grounds for optimism here. I think most of us are, are fairly optimistic how effective it will be. Whether it's going to give lasting immunity, we, we just don't know. But the fact is there are over 170 candidates we hear about that have been evaluated at, at various stages, and probably over 10 have come into clinical trials already. So... Toward the end of the year, we should have a, a reasonable steer. And, and just to really take on Miguel's point about the collaboration, it is actually quite phenomenal what is happening at the moment. So, the, the, the Oxford trial, which I get a bit of visibility into, I, I, I can't tell you the details for, for, for confidentiality reasons, but. There are many labs working on this. No one country can do it by themselves. So there are labs in the US, in Australia, many in Europe that are contributing to the evaluation of, of the Oxford vaccine. There's a huge amount of collaboration between the different parties. And, and one of my colleagues was asked, is this a race? And he pointed out it's not a race between all the developers. It's actually a race against the virus. And that there's a lot of uh, sharing of information.
6: Miguel, I think you mentioned in your intro, you're actually working with the COVID-19
4: virus in the lab. How has that been? So when this happened, uh, we decided, James Osher, my colleague in the Department of Microbiology, came to my office and I said, okay, have you seen what's going on in China? This virus that is, seems like it's, you know, it's going to be a problem. Maybe we should start working on that. And I have to be completely honest here, going on the record, that I hesitated for a few seconds. They said, oh, come on, I have so much stuff to do that I, I cannot jump into this. <laughs> Slow of priority. Of course, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the virologist and then and the, the excitement, so well, yeah, why not, Let, let's do it. And I, well, who knew that was gonna be like this and, uh, six months later or five months later? So anyway, at that point, we started working and we have a PC3 lab, like I mentioned before, the physical containment tree lab in, in, here in, in Otago. So we have all the tools. We have the expertise. We have the people. We, have, we knew how to do this, or we know how to do this. So I so, said, yeah, why not? Somebody mentioned at some point, is why we're going to be doing this if everybody else is doing it around the globe, Australia and, you know, uh, in Europe and in the U.S. And my answer to, do that, uh, to, to that was, because we can. Why not? I mean, we, we should be, you know, helping and, and doing this. When we started developing a diagnostic tests for these virus, even before, the, even we, we have a, a single case here in New Zealand. At that point, I, I don't think I even had one in Australia. Uh, we, we had a problem that we didn't have uh, positive controls, meaning we didn't have the virus here. How are we gonna test uh, a test if we don't have a, a virus here to, to do it? So we had to do it artificially, this is a long story. But once we isolated the virus and when we had it, then we started sharing the, the genetic material. So all these different clinical labs, institutions, uh, were able to start doing what we were doing a, a month or so ago because we were able to isolate the virus. And it did open the door for antiviral projects, like Vernon was mentioning, the vaccine uh, and, you know, initiative that we are involved. And if we didn't have that opportunity of working with the virus and, and do what we did, we wouldn't be here where we are.
6: Gemma, we should probably get into a bit of what this virus is. I mean, how is it different to other viruses, which you know we've we've seen with pandemic potential like SARS and flu viruses?
0: So, SARS, which emerged in about 2002, is another coronavirus. It had a higher mortality rate of about 10%, but importantly, the transmissibility or the R-naught value was around one, so it was easily tracked. Um, there weren't many asymptomatic cases. It was kind of too severe, really, and the transmission rate was too low for the virus really to take off and go anywhere. And so the elimination strategy for that virus was really effective. H1N1 um, in 2009, that was the swine flu pandemic. And I think everyone has anticipated that being a lot worse than it was. It was less severe than we thought it might be because we probably had some immunity from some other influenza strains that was going around. So That quickly spread, but influenza virus has an R naught again of um, between one and two, usually around 1.5. The, the difference in this virus is that it is incredibly infectious. The transmission rate or the r naught value is estimated between four and five.
6: The R0 value being how many other people someone's likely to infect.
0: Exactly. So on average, how many secondary cases one infected person um, infects? As well, it has a higher mortality rate compared to seasonal flu, for example. And so it's really a sort of combination of the mm. incredible infectiousness and severity of the disease that it causes.
6: So I'm going to betray the level of nerdiness here, but I imagine them I'm a little bit like Dungeons and Dragons characters where they have like stats for how infectious they are and stats for how, how fatal they are and all these different things. So it's sort of just hit the sweet spot for being very infectious, doing a lot of damage, but not killing people before they can pass it on kind of thing.
0: Yeah, so there's a sort of false assumption that viruses always will eventually attenuate to become less severe eventually. But actually, the only thing a virus cares about is infecting the next cell. And so a successful virus will always try and adapt to become more transmissible. And so if the risk of it being too severe is going to affect its transmissibility, a successful virus will try and change that severity to become more transmissible. But COVID-19 is, um, is incredibly infectious. It's doing pretty well without changing its severity. So we don't anticipate it, it changing.
6: That's interesting. Is that different from some other pandemic viruses we've seen?
0: There are examples where there are viruses that have been around for centuries. You no, know, smallpox we know that have been around for at least centuries, probably longer. And if it was around today, it would be as severe as it ever was. So there was no evidence that it's changed its severity or its virulence. We've had that for a long time in humans. So it's really dependent on, on the virus and how well it adapts to, to the new host that it's infecting.
6: We've talked a little bit about vaccine development. Hopefully one's created, let's say it's in a year's time. What is New Zealand's strategy for getting that? Because I imagine we'd be, you know, pretty low in the pecking order by world standards because we don't have it. We're not looking to break the back of some horrific outbreak like they're seeing in a lot of other countries. The New Zealand strategy, I think, is actually a reasonably smart
5: one. The major investment is with international collaborative groups. So, in fact... Um, That's the Gavi Alliance who've who've had a great success in getting vaccines into poor countries. And then the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, which was really set up pretty much for this situation. Mm. And it has a lot of philanthropic support. This is the first time New Zealand's actually contributed. This is the effort to try and work together as countries to work with the best vaccines, to look at manufacturing and to be scale it up. Now, that's a big
6: issue. Is there a way to get ahead of that? Like, can we start building the factories now?
5: Yes, and one complication is uh, knowing which platforms, knowing which type of vaccines, because the manufacturing process will depend on the type of vaccines. But but absolutely, and that's happening already to some extent, and it may be that it is produced under licence in many countries, and that's the way to get around scalability. But the equity issue, of course, is is on everyone's mind, especially when we see... Mm-hmm us buying world. yes and so that's a concern how how that will play out but at least this is this is the the effort to try and and do that and we may not be as bad as we think because in fact it's been pointed out that new zealand because of its robust health system and the fact that it's managed to get the numbers down may actually be a good place to roll it out not to trial it we're probably the worst place in the world to do phase three trials at the moment because there's no cases but that we, it may not be a bad place to, to be one of the... So I don't think that assumption we're at the bottom of the pecking order is necessarily correct.
6: So who would be at the top of the picking order?
5: Hopefully by need, and that will be the, you know what's need.
6: How are those things decided? Is there going to have to be a special session of the UN or something like that?
5: I don't know the details, but I, I'm imagining that these groups will be... You know, looking at that at the
6: moment and trying to work that out, uh,
5: but you can imagine the politics that will come into play. Yeah,
6: and I, I realise none of you, none of you are politicians, yeah. but uh, do you worry about that? That this will become mm. a big fight? I do worry, but it's kind of worked
5: before with other areas and very successfully getting vaccines that are needed into countries that can't afford them. Mm. There is a history of that. It's different, much smaller scale, but the
6: the players are there who have have some big influence, so hopefully that can play out. Mm. Speaking about the rest of the world, we're now seeing second waves in the United States, for example. I mean, what could we do to reduce or, or prevent that, if anything?
3: Yeah, I think the terminology is really interesting because we've got the, the idea of a second wave, but actually the world's just in its first wave. And the the problem we're seeing now is entirely generated by human activity or failure to respond Internationally and there 's really two diff- very different situations playing out the The first wave is rolling around the world very steadily. It may take a couple of years before it infects sixty percent of the world 's population, which is what it 's expected to do, and in the process, kill maybe one percent of them, which is maybe thirty million people and Obviously, in the countries where they 've still got a lot of circulating virus they 're really doing the suppression approach if they 've got the resources to and that 's very much of Europe and North America to some extent, so all they can do to contain it is to basically add in a bit more physical distancing, hopefully a bit more face mask use, and that dampens down transmission. But if they take their foot off the brake, as they're doing in US states, it's like basically shaking a bottle of sparkling wine and taking the, the cap off. It's just going to explode because you've got all those chains of transmission that will just take off again. Uh, so. Most of the world, in, or the high income countries now, are in this mode of going in and out of um, lockdown or various forms of suppression until there's some alternative comes along. Then there's the other countries, which includes much of the Eastern Hemisphere, mainland China in particular, Australia, New Zealand. We're all doing the really heading towards containment or elimination. And we're going to have setbacks. That's very likely. I mean, that's happened in most countries doing. This path, I mean, China and South Korea and others. And that's been sometimes called a second wave. Again, it isn't, it's a wrong term. And it's a very different situation. These are outbreaks which are hopefully very manageable with contact tracing, uh, mask use, and so on. And I'm interested actually, how many people in the audience actually own, say, a reusable fabric mask and would be in a position to use it if the alternative was going into lockdown or wearing a mask? I don't know how many of you out there... Please raise your masks masks in the
6: air (laughs) and could use it. About half, isn't it?
3: I wore one on the flight down. I'm just trying to get used to wearing one to see what it feels like. I'm still not that used to it, I have to say. But um, that is a very low-cost, effective way of avoiding lockdowns. And I think much of the world now is heading down that path, and it's actually very effective. So that will be one of the ways they can avoid this... um, so-called second wave i think
6: i mean is there an argument that we should be doing all this stuff now because it's a habit you have to get into and i did notice that even as we went into level two and i went to the supermarket and never, and i sort of realized oh we're all not worried about this anymore are we because you know people are bumping into you and all kinds of things do we need to do a bit more to enforce those habits
3: Well, this is really what the Ministry of Health is working very hard on at the moment, is um, resurgence planning. And they're going to be looking, I think, at all of the full spectrum of strategies uh, because we really obviously want to avoid the the kind of lockdown, that kind of blunt instrument. And so I think strategies like having the ability to use face masks effectively is one thing we can do. And I think um, that we we may see more of that. The other, of course, is um, testing and contact tracing which is also very effective. But we need to do more exercises. We need to look at digital solutions there that may help. Um, so I think this is the, these are the kind of things we're going to see more of in the next few months.
6: Dave, what are your thoughts about how, the, how everything's going globally with the, with the virus? I mean, I guess it depends which country you're talking about.
5: We're waiting to see about issues of, of immunity, obviously we're waiting for vaccines and not really with a, a great alternative at the moment. And I think that the leadership issue is one that probably hasn't been, we haven't spoken about and I think that's that's been intimately linked to the response of of, of country leadership and in-country leadership it has been crucial
6: but yes we're seeing incredible variability. Gemma, actually you do some work on genomic sequencing when it comes to viruses and that could be part of the response too I'm understanding, could you explain some of that?
0: Basically when a virus is replicating and making more copies of itself it makes mistakes which are mutations and these mutations get passed on to the next transmission and so if we look at the virus genome from all the cases then what we can do is reconstruct a sort of family tree of, or an evolutionary tree and we can use that to track sort of who infected who so um, really accurate contact networks that you wouldn't get just through epi-, epi data alone. We can also understand how the virus evolves and spreads through time. We can understand how the transmission rate falls or increases um, especially in response to public health interventions and how uh, we can assess the effectiveness of them. And we can understand the genetic diversity of the virus, what sort of mutations we should be concerned about or are interesting, especially going forward, um, looking at potential therapeutics such as antivirals or vaccines. We need to know what sort of viruses um, are spreading around the world. So um, that's what we're doing at the moment. We're doing the genome sequencing of the cases that are in the hotel isolation facilities to understand if they were infected on the flight or if they were infected before they boarded that flight. So we're trying to understand the sort of risks of, of infection. I think going forward, what um, is crucial to do this work is because um, what we can do is if a virus case does pop up out of the blue and, and there's, it's lacking any sort of epidemiological data that links that with a known case, we can compare that genome to all the other genomes that have been sequenced um, in New Zealand and around the world. We can know where it's come from, how big that true cluster size is, um, how big the outbreak we're dealing with, and we'll be able to estimate the size of the undetected um, community transmission that's been going on.
6: How quick can that happen? Can we can that be part of our real-time response if we do have another outbreak?
0: Yeah, definitely. So we can generate the whole genome um, and have it up online um, within about six hours. The, wow. The bottleneck is actually the diagnostic labs um, sending us the the sample, that's... Uh... So
6: faster cars is what so, we yeah, need.
0: Yeah. yeah, so at the moment it's about 24 hours that we're getting the ones from the hotels.
6: Look, finally, we should we should start to asking questions about what the future's going to be like, and I guess we don't know, but... Um, <laughs> so that's the answer from all of you. Um, I mean, Michael, is there a chance that we need to prepare for the ca- worst-case scenario that there isn't a vaccine and that we need to start thinking about Plan B, as some notable um, uh, people have been calling it, to to come up with a plan for how to create herd immunity as safely as possible. Is that something we should look at, at least?
3: Yeah, I guess having a giant measles party in New Zealand and turning the virus loose to immunise us, well, as we know, it hasn't worked terribly well for Sweden so far. But, you know, one of the difficulties is we don't know that much about how immunity will behave with this virus, how long-lived it will be. And I know some of the modellers overseas have looked at various scenarios with immunity being of different durations and you can actually have not a particularly pleasing situation where the virus will just keep circulating and come back and wave after wave and each time it goes through the population it will kill 1% and it will leave many of the survivors with this quite um, severe chronic disease, lung disease, multi-system disease and uh, fatigue and so on and that's certainly what has been seen with survivors from SARS and MERS. There's quite a large number of have a chronic effect. So, I think people have maybe underestimated the consequence of a wave of this virus moving through a population. So, I think the other assumptions I think that Sweden made about one was that there would be a clean. Immunising wave, which hasn't happened. The other is that it would, their economy could bounce back quite quickly, which also hasn't happened. There are a number of problems that with that approach. So I don't think that's going to be acceptable. But of course, I think the, the scenario I think is quite likely is while we are waiting for a vaccine or antivirals, we will have an increasing proportion of the Eastern Hemisphere of countries that are, are very successfully pursuing the elimination approach. increasing movement of people between those countries and remembering we will still have connections with the rest of the world via various forms of quarantine and I think that can get much more streamlined going ahead and we've done modeling which shows you can actually eliminate a lot of the need for quarantine by just having people wear face masks for two weeks but of course then there's a whole question of will will they do that but I, I think we can get there so I'm very positive actually about um, the situation for New Zealand, unfortunately, I think it's very grim for countries that are essentially leaderless like much of Latin America.
4: We cannot forget that these virus, like Mike uh, was saying, is killing, and I'm going to say only in between quotes, 1% of the population. Mm. A lot of people get infected and they are asymptomatic. Some of them have symptoms, but it's a really, really, really bad call. Some people get really, really you know, affected. They have to go to the hospital. Um, so if we're able to develop a, 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 and get a, a, an antiviral that reduces those symptoms, the people will survive and minimize the, the, you know, the, the consequences of being infected. We should be able to control the pandemic that, that way as well. In the meantime, while, while we wait for the, for the vaccine, of course, mm. it's not that bad. Yeah. Okay. It's a new virus, it's infecting the, the whole glove, but, but it's not killing 10, 15, 20% of the people that get infected. I mean,
6: COVID-19 has been regularly referred to as sort of a once-in-a-generation event. Um, does that mean that we've sort of had ours and now we're good for the rest of our lives? Uh...
0: There's evidence that the rate that viruses are emerging in human populations is increasing, and the reasons, I guess, are complex, um, and there are many reasons, but um, a few are that we are increasingly encroaching on wildlife populations through um, deforestation, hunting, expanding human density populations and, and habitats. And so we're interacting with wildlife more frequently than we have before. And that's going to increase the chances that a virus will jump to humans there's another side of it that lots of viruses jump to humans and and don't go anywhere but increasingly you know humans live in more dense populations increasingly there's less uptake of vaccines and so on so not only that they're more likely to jump but they're also more likely to spread between humans too so I would say that we might see this one again
6: (laughs) what's your favorite um COVID-19 myth and explain why it's wrong.
2: Apparently, Vladimir Putin let 500 lions out in Moscow to force people to stay at home, and I don't think I have to explain why it's probably not correct. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favourite too now.
0: <laughs> I really like the 5G stuff. <laughs> because there's absolutely no logic to it, but it's, it's scarily popular. There were a lot of
3: um, myths about wearing face masks that you would somehow die from carbon dioxide poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing, it's not so much a myth, but I think it was overstated early on, was the role of fomites. That's the idea that you had to bleach all your fruit and vegetables when you got them home when you were sitting in level three and four. And I just had this image of a whole lot of people sitting at home with their bleach and water, washing down every item, and it was just not. It was a complete overreaction. Are you serious? Because I did that every single
4: shopping trip. (laughs) And I hated it. (laughs) again, being a virologist, is the fact that people say that, that we, somebody, created these viruses in, in a lab. The reality is, if you study the molecular biology of these viruses, it, it was impossible.
6: I must admit I'm a 5G one as well. I mean, it feels like we've got a really good experiment of that in New Zealand where we're switching 5G on and there's not a huge outbreak of coronavirus happening, so... Yeah. Look, we're now going to throw it open to the audience...
1: I'd like to ask a question about contact tracing. These days, everybody seems to be taking it for granted that community transmission isn't happening and isn't going to happen again. And so um, places that I go to, there is no QR for us to, to scan. There's, there's nothing I'm, I'm expected to keep a diary at home, which I'm doing. I wonder how many people would be doing that. How critical is it that we actually do this kind of thing? Because I know I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, so somebody asked me what I did you know, 10 days ago. I couldn't answer that.
3: We just look at the scenario in Victoria, and I think that's what we have to prepare for, that there is somehow... The virus um, transmission does occur from one of the growing number of quarantine facilities, uh, the 25, there may maybe 30 quite soon. We have to plan for things going wrong, because... Not everyone is, is, um, follows rules, and you've got the staff and the, the people staying there. So that is a scenario where it gets out in the community, and the first we know about it is um, three weeks later when we see a whole lot of people turning up who are ill. And that will be the real test for um, connect tracing. So I, I think we have to do lots of exercises regularly to make sure the system is up to scratch. I think the main elements are in place. It's just... Complacency and I a degree of um, apathy may start to come in with that, those systems, so we have to just keep working at them and testing them out. The digital area looks really promising on paper, but it has not delivered anywhere in the world yet. And I think there is a COVID card which has been developed in New Zealand. I think it's looking quite promising. But again, we just have to see if that looks good enough to roll out in New Zealand.
7: My, my concern is... Um Asymptomatic spread Radio New Zealand played that uh, story About the small passenger ship The Greg Mortimer If you think of the ship As a microcosm you know, of, of a country Everybody was checked Nobody had been to any of these at risk countries It was right at the start of the, It was just before the pandemic was declared And everybody uh, Was cleared health wise Before the voyage began 217 passengers and crew. And then gradually there was a, a bit of a fever outbreak and whatnot. And then about three weeks later, the ship went to Montevideo and every single person on board was tested. Right? They found that 59% were uh, tested positive, of whom 81% were asymptomatic. But further to that, 10 people share a cabin in which there is one positive and one negative. So what lessons should we be
3: learning from that? The asymptomatic state is very age-dependent. If you're getting down into people under 20, it's about 80% We have no symptoms. 70% of over 70-year-olds will have symptoms. And I think the general figure that's coming out of the systematic reviews is around uh, 40%... To 50% will be asymptomatic.
6: Former ACT leader Rodney Hyde um, horrified a uh, talkback audience a few weeks ago with uh, his view that uh, to get the economy going, especially tourism, again, we should open the borders instantly. But he claimed that Swedish deaths at some stage had a median age of 85. I wondered how true that was. Uh, We heard maybe something similar from Italian deaths at an early stage. How true is that, but also how, how is that taken into consideration in the cost-benefits of different strategies?
3: In the final analysis, the intervention is extremely expensive for years of life saved. There's no question about that. But um, many people are saying it will be a number of years before you can actually do the kind of benefit-cost ratio to work out which countries perhaps did the most effective approach. I think there are so many unknowns, but if you look at the future prospect for health and economic prosperity in New Zealand, most, I think, all economists that I know of are are in agreement that you're much better without the virus and with it, and that the situation for China is opening up its economy, it's almost back to business. Um, New Zealand's internal economy is now recovering. Australia, again, similar compared with, say, the UK. Um, And uh, certainly Sweden's approach has not given it an economic boost compared with its other Nordic neighbours. So, you know, overall, I think that the general consensus seems to be that the model that New Zealand's taking is the the best for this country. It may not be the best for other countries. It's certainly not the best for low-income countries. Although you have got, say, Vietnam, for example, which is doing exceptionally well, Despite being an emerging economy and with a very long complex border, having no fatalities in very few cases. Where's the similarity of MERS and COVID
0: 19? So MERS um, is another coronavirus. The reservoir host is bats again, but it actually jumped through camels to get to humans. And it's jumped from camels quite a few times to infect humans. The r naught, thankfully, of MERS is below one. So it always kind of fizzles out quite quickly. Um, It has a really high mortality rate it's about 30% so that's good for us that it kind of fizzles out um, every time it sort of emerges from camels but it's it's still emerging but it's very controlled um, within sort of country boundaries. As
1: a psychologist I'm just interested in you being science communicators and researchers, what do you do for your mental health and self care?
2: My brother lives in the US and him and his wife, my sister-in-law, and their family are getting quite concerned about what's going on and they're feeling it really bad. And, and what I did is sit down and just talk through them and talk through, as a scientist, I talk through the numbers with them. And it puts you in a... In a for my, myself, it, I, I can get to a rational position. doesn't mean that you don't concern about families. I have an elderly mother who's just gone into a rest home. Um, but you do think about those things. But for me, as a scientist, it, it's having that, trying to be, as much as I can, rational in my thoughts and understanding that actually not many people do have this. I can even though I should be wearing a mask, walk around New Zealand and and I'm very unlikely to to catch COVID. Most people haven't caught COVID and many people have got better from it. Doesn't mean it's not dangerous, doesn't mean it's not a big deal, but it does mean for me that I can rationalise it and that's how I keep myself in that space.
4: If you ask my wife or my daughter who's starting to be a clinical psychologist, maybe I'm not handling this the right way. Uh, But the reality is that for the last three or four or five months that we have been doing this, it has been a dichotomy between worry about my family that is on a different continent and worry about, of course, everything that's going on, but at the same time having a lot of fun. And I have to admit it, being a virologist, in the middle of something like this, it's it's heaven for us. It's, 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 (laughs) it's, 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 It's... we study and worked for 30 years to do these, and, and, and now suddenly we, we, we have the opportunity to play around with these. Uh, we are having so much fun at the same time. so yeah.:
0: It's a really interesting time to be a virologist or be in this area of infectious disease or public health,, you know, especially in New Zealand, where we actually have the freedom to be able to go to work and continue our research. I think continuing the research is a way of sort of coping pretty well and the great understanding we have of the outbreak I think is the, the more reassurance we get. So,
3: well, look, I did find there was a period then when I was just sitting at my desk but I felt I was almost astral travelling all over the world various meetings and so on and you, you suddenly realise a whole day or maybe 16 hours have passed, you actually haven't left your desk but you've had these really quite amazing um, encounters with people all over the world and also with your, your, your colleagues and with the media and so on. It was a really fascinating, quite surreal time. I mean, my break was just to go for lots of bicycle rides to break up the day. But also, the other thing I think is just looking at The Guardian weekly on my phone and or The Guardian and realising how fortunate we were to be in New Zealand with the sane government. And that was just such an amazing, I felt, relief of, of stress, really, realising that.
5: may or may not be obvious, but a lot of people working at the, the coalface are really... In need of a break and uh, this, it, the strain and people probably as stressed as they ever have been um, mm-hmm. is now really starting to show. So there are a lot of people taking breaks um, and that's really important. So do ask people how they're doing. It's It's vital. And what do I do? I
6: make guitars, but I haven't been doing much of that recently. But I found that with the coronavirus podcast, when we were making that, and I had daily deadlines every single day to hit, I was fine. I was sweet. And then as soon as that ended, and my deadlines became weekly or monthly deadlines, you start looking too far ahead, and you get very freaked out about the future. So part of my solution is to focus on what you have to do today or the next day
1: curious about the thousands of people that have recovered officially from coronavirus all over the world and what impact that potentially has for border openings or not quarantining people as they come in and you know people are rushing to get borders open but is it actually potentially appropriate to open them or not quarantine folk that we know have actually officially been declared recovered by their various countries particularly countries that have it significantly Mm. under control as we do.
6: That's a good question. Should there be some
2: kind of COVID-free passport you can have if you've recovered from the virus? If you take the thing about people already having virus, there's people that want to travel for all sorts of personal and professional reasons. And it's a bit like I'm going to sort of shift out a little bit at and around like if you were to have an, an immunity passport you're going to drive some very strange behaviours there will be people that want to travel they will then decide they want to have a coronavirus party so they can catch it then they will start to you know you have the chance of spreading you've got your asymptomatics some of them will spread we can argue about how efficient that is. You, know, you start putting that together, then you're going to have a different. You're going to have the elite class that can travel, and the ones that can't. And you're going to have people that will have tested, and, and maybe they test is they want to do point of care testing, and they will want an antibody test, and that will say it's negative, but that doesn't tell you what that person's going to be in three days' time. Um, you know, there's there's so many hooks around it. There's some things that people are suggesting about how we might move that actually I think have some serious consequences too. Because SARS, MERS and COVID,
1: they're all coronaviruses, how much of that previous vaccine research, MERS, is actually related or can be used for COVID? Um, And the other one, I haven't heard of any vaccine for SARS or MERS, and I'm assuming that's because there was no large-scale interest like there is for COVID. So assuming that with the lot of media coverage we've had concerning COVID... Will that also lead to an increase in the amount of scientific funding that governments are giving towards research purposes?
5: There are, and there there were vaccines developed for SARS and MERS. Uh, SARS just suddenly kind of disappeared, and uh, as you say, the interest was lost in developing it further. But some of the vaccines for COVID that are currently under development are repurposed MERS ones. So, in fact, it's the same technology. The Oxford one is a very good example. And, in fact, there are some MERS vaccines being trialled. So that is still ongoing. But you're absolutely right about the interest and the the funding. Uh, And reflecting on Ebola, the Ebola outbreak in West Africa a few years ago, that really pushed along vaccine technology because of the the worldwide concern and the investment in that. And the, the vaccines that were developed at that time again, were much faster than had been developed before. So the answers are, yes, funding does follow the interest and and the importance and the urgency, and there have been vaccines developed to certain stages for for SARS and perhaps more, more so for MERS.
2: And I'd add in that some of the drugs that have been trialled, antiviral drugs, are coming out of that same stream. So the galidesavir drug that's been trialled was originally developed as an Ebola drug along with the remdesivir. And it's because these RNA viruses have common replication mechanisms that they're looking for the transfer of these drugs to see if they will work in a a variation of what that target for that drug is.
4: So you had a really good point about the funding that it goes in waves. The same thing happened with SARS and MERS. After they basically disappeared, the funding dried up. There is an anecdote: in order to work with these coronaviruses, you have to do in an animal models, of course. And one of the the animal models is a mouse. They have expressed the receptor of the human you know receptor that, that the virus uses to enter the cells. So they, they developed these mice back in you know, 2003, 2012 to work with SARS and MERS. And it was a month before we hit this pandemic that everybody was decided. okay, these viruses are not around anymore. We're gonna just freeze these mice, the sperms, and, and, and okay? And it was a month before they did that, that this pandemic happened. If now we'll have to wait again, I mean, you know, to start creating the mice and, and, and so on. So it's it just what I was mentioning before, short memory. We need to keep funding antivirals, vaccines, research in general, in infectious diseases, because this is going to, going to continue happening.
1: Yeah, I was quite interested, Michael, about masks. I still don't know whether masks are effective or not. You obviously believe that they are, but I've heard that the viral particles are actually quite small, and they can go through the fabric masks. And then I've heard that the N95 masks are a bit more effective. And the other thing I was really interested in was your comment at the start, where you said that if everybody in New Zealand wore masks, then we wouldn't need to go into quarantine for in two weeks. People that came in.
3: Of course, masks are a key part of PPE to protect healthcare workers, is no question. The the big change in thinking is masks as source control, and in that situation, even if they're 50% effective. If you put that into a model, if everyone is wearing a mask during that pre-symptomatic stage or if they're asymptomatic and they're not breathing and talking laughing, singing onto other people, which generates a lot of viral particles, that's enough to actually stop a pandemic. And it's because it's a population measure. It only has to dampen down transmission. It's a bit like, you know, the emphasis was on wash your hands, but actually it's helpful. It doesn't work with a respiratory virus where a lot of the infection happens before people are sick. You say, stay at home when you're sick. That doesn't help because a lot of people are asymptomatic or infectious before they're sick. So we have, in the space of stopping transmission between people, we've only got these very crude instruments, which is you know, having a full lockdown where everyone essentially has got home quarantine. But if everyone's wearing masks, or even 80%, it's very effective at avoiding that. And it's because when the particles leave your mouth they're actually quite large and the laboratory studies show that a mask even a simple fabric mask will stop them but once they turn into very fine particles as they start to lose moisture then you're right it's they can then go through very small holes in, in masks so people wearing these fabric masks the main benefit is, is source control there is a, there is some benefit for protecting you even with a, a very basic mask as well you look at Taiwan, um, even after they had eliminated the virus, um, 30 days of no uh, transmission within the country, they passed a law requiring people to wear masks on all public transport. And that's because they believe in the multi-barrier approach. They don't want to take any chances, and I think they're the world leaders in uh, risk management with this pandemic.
1: I was just wondering if we have any early indications of how fast the genetic drift is in this virus. Are we going to get a vaccine that we can have one and done, or is it going to be like the flu vaccine we have to have every
0: year? On average, this virus has about 20 mutations in one genome per year, and in, in context, influenza has about 50 mutations, and it has um, a genome that's about half the length so coronavirus is probably about four times slower mutating than influenza virus and we know that influenza virus you know you need a vaccine every year and that's one of the reasons why is because it it keeps changing and and evading our vaccines so this is all good news for vaccines because it points to the fact that it's a very slow mutating virus and um, so a vaccine might be more long-lasting than than we would have expected otherwise. So we don't know the the answer to that question yet, but it's looking quite promising um, in terms of the amount of genetic diversity.
6: Well, look, um, first I want to thank the audience for your actually really awesome and intelligent questions. Um, And obviously thank you to our wonderful panel for being here tonight. We'll give them a round of applause.
1: And a big thanks to William Ray and the University of Otago virus experts Vernon Ward, Miguel Quinones Mateo, Michael Baker, David Murdoch, and Gemma Geegan. That was just half of the COVID 19 Unmasked panel discussion recorded at the New Zealand International Science Festival in Dunedin in July. You can find the full recording on the Our Changing World webpage, rnzconz slash changing world. Don't forget, you can also find RNZ Hour Changing World as a podcast. Many thanks for your company. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Paul Marier.
0: Botox Cosmetic, Ata Botulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.